Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. The first one is Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. I'll be reading from the NIV. NIV. can't actually speak today. That's good. Which is um, pages, two to, pages 2 to 3. Uh, the Bible's at the back, if, you, uh, if you're so inclined. <clears throat> Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I will, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The next passage is Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, page 785 on the Bibles at the back. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom of glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what we already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Thanks, Nick. Morning. Morning. How are we doing? Are we good? Um, this is... I feel a little exposed at the moment because Jack last week had like a, like a pulpit thing and now I'm like, that didn't, I chose not to do it with the pulpit but now I'm kind of regretting it a little bit, that's right. So, um, hi, my name's Andrew, um, I'm also known as Tran. Uh, I'm one of the elder candidates here at Citadel at North Adelaide. Um, heaps of fresh faces here. You're, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. Welcome, uh, massive welcome to you guys. Um, hang around for burgers as well. If you're, especially if you're new, you don't know anyone, I encourage you, Make yourself known, let's have a burger together, let's have some good food together, and um, let's talk about life and stuff, right? Um, if you are um, not aware, we're in our second week of our Bible talks called uh, Work and Worship, where we are reconnecting the daily grind to the glory of God. Um, essentially, we're exploring uh, this idea of work, or we're doing a, a biblical theology of work, um, uh, again, in a classic Jack, uh, Jacko move, he decides to start a sermon series and the next week he trolls me and goes away on a holiday, right, and on work. But um, he, he actually, when, when we're talking about like this sermon series, he, he joked with me, I don't actually know if it's a joke, but he said to me, something along the lines of, uh, can you talk about hating work? Because like, I know you've got heaps of experience with that, right? <laughs> so like, I don't know if he's been actually that savage, but um, no, yeah. Um, last week he asked us, uh, what if, if rate your satisfaction level from like one to five, five being like amazingly happy, and I was like two. But I was actually quite surprised that everyone was like a four or five. So maybe I'm just really cynical, right? So I don't know. Um, hate is a strong word. I, I I don't hate it. I just have frustrations with work. Um, but as Jacko mentioned last week, um, it's important to look at work because uh, from a biblical frame, from from a biblical point of view, because we spend what eighty to a hundred thousand hours of our lifetime doing it. That's a lot of, that's a lot of time. Um, so it's probably not a bad idea to, to, as Christians to find out what, is, what does the Bible have to say about work. And the Bible has plenty to say about it. Last week, um, you can catch this up on the podcast as well, but a bit quick um, TLDR, uh, we looked at the idea that work is good. Work is good. We explored that as Christians, we believe that God, the God of the universe, the, God, the creator God, the original worker, the OG worker himself, made us humans in his image to be like him, to be workers like him. And in the beginning, creation was good. Work was good. Everything was good. And since work is tied in with our humanity, work has the ability to give us happiness. We've talked about the fact that work in of itself has a goodness to it, in of itself has a responsibility attached to it, but also has a necessity about it. And as Christians, we need to be reminded of this truth and we need to live out these truths, we need to be reminded about this all the time. But you might be thinking, if that's the case, Tran, if work is so good, how do we explain things like Mondayitis? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Mondayitis? 
If work is so good, why do we have Monday-itis? That disease that we wake up on Monday morning, we wake up and we know we've got work in a few hours time and some of us are questioning our existences, you know that feeling? Um, it's sometimes associated with like, man, I, f- I feel like the weekend wasn't long enough, but sometimes it's actually, you know, you, come, you have Monday, I just when you come back from a holiday and you go to work and you say, man, I need a holiday from my holiday, you, you know what I'm saying? Um, and funnily enough, Monday artist doesn't actually just happen on Mondays. For me, it's like, well, to be honest, if I'm completely clear, probably like three, four times a week, maybe. Um, maybe you might feel like this guy, this guy here, it's uh, Wally. Wally, yes, this guy, old mate Wally here, uh, he is the waste allocated lift loader earth class. Um, it's, I love this scene from the, the, from the Disney Pixar film, Wally. Um, he's a robot, he's, he, all he makes is sound. He's like, that's all he does, right? But the subtitle for this, as he wakes up, is groaning. <laughs> How does a robot groan? But it's not just Monday-itis either, right? It's the post-food, the post-lunch food coma. It's 3.30-itis. It's that halfway through your shift itch. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes with work, the struggle is real. The struggle is real. No matter how good you like, how good your work is, and how much you love your work whether it be a paid vocation, whether it be volunteering, whether it be you're just a uni student or, or you're a full-time parent looking after your kids, we all go through this time to time. And for some of us, more often than others. This groan, however, this struggle, however, deep down, we know this, it's, it's, just, it's a symptom of something else, something more sinister. A problem is not the struggle with work. The, the struggle with work is just a symptom of something else, something that something is not right with work. Now, I'm not trying to diminish here. If you enjoy your work, I'm not trying to diminish or dismiss or discount the goodness of it. And if you get satisfaction, that's, if that's your experience, you know what? Power be to you. I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm legitimately happy for you. But I know that uh, all of us, we taste the brokenness of the world. We, we taste the struggles of work pretty often now. If we're honest with ourselves from time to time, there are parts of us that dislike it and even at time, hate it. No one would argue here, or I, would, I would put you, no one would argue here that there's a, there is such thing as a perfect job. Because we know realistically in, on earth, work has its ups and downs. But luckily for us, the Bible does not force us to be like Ned Flanders, to pretend that everything is hard, dilly, damn, ho, whatever he says. But neither does the Bible, neither is the Bible nihilistic or completely pessimistic about work either. Rather, Christianity, gives, uh, Christianity actually gives us space to hold these two things in tension. It gives us the space to enjoy work, but also struggle with it, honestly. And it even gives us answers as to why we might sometimes even hate it. So as we look at God's word this morning, let's pray and ask to see, ask that God answers us in answering, answering why is work hard? And see if there's, is there any hope for us in the, with, with this thing that we do for 100,000 hours in our lifetimes? Let's pray and ask God to help us, eh? Hey? Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken through it, through so many different authors. 
but they all tell the unifying story of they all tell of a unifying story about you. I pray this morning that you reveal to us through your word, by the power of your spirit, who you are, and in turn, tell us who we are. Lord, this morning, I know that we're talking about touchy things. Comfort us where we are hurting. Challenge us where we are stubborn. And change us to be more like you. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. This is the result of the fall, by the way. (laughs) To understand why we hate work, we need to understand what's wrong with work. Last week we talked about, we launched out of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, um, where we talked about work being good, and now we're picking up where we left off in Genesis 3. We need to understand the origin story. As I said earlier, God created mankind in his image to cultivate and in the garden, to create something out of the creation that he gave. And he also gave them one instruction to not disobey, just one. In last week's reading, Genesis 2, 15 to 17 says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But what happens next? Well, it all goes right, and when that exact thing happens, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to them, did God really, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? With this single line of questioning, the serpent slips into the minds of Adam and Eve, doubt about his word. Genesis 3, 4 and 5 says this. You, the serpent says, you will certainly, you will certainly not die. You, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent makes them doubt God's goodness to them, but it also makes them doubt their own identity. Think about it, think about this for a sec. They were already made in God's image. They were already like God. But Adam and Eve chose to give in to the allure that was presented to them, and they chose to dissipate the one thing that God told them not to do. They distrusted God's ways and ultimately distrusted God himself. And in thinking that they knew better, they failed to be who they were meant to be. And this is where the disease of sin creeps into creation. And as the narrative narrative goes, God finds them out. And after some blame shifting and stuff, came the curse that God places on creation. I'm going to read for you Genesis 14 to 19, just to reiterate what Nick read beforehand. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, 
because you have listened to your wife and ate the fruit from the tree which, about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. It's very clear that here, that sin had entered into creation already. But don't get it twisted, friends. It was God who cursed it. It was God who cursed it. The curse over creation is God's judicial decree in response to the sin that was committed against him. It's God's judicial decree in response to the sin that was committed against him. The guilty actions of Adam, the head of the human race, forever changed the course of history and the consequences and its consequences continue to infect and affect every single part of our lives today. Through this narrative in Genesis, we see three relationships break down between God and humanity, between humans, and between creation and humanity. And that's where it lies or the source of all our dislikes and frustrations and hatred with work. Creation has been corrupted and humans have been corrupted. Now there are many ways in which we experience these frustrations with work, but scripture gives us a few ways that these frustrations manifest, namely the toil of work, the meaninglessness of work, and the idolatry behind work. I'm gonna shout out to Catherine Alstorff and Tim Keller in their book, Every Good and Dare. This was kind of taken out of their book a little bit. It's like a, like a good framework to go by, but um, this is not my original ideas, but this is mostly theirs, I think. Um, but yeah, Let, let's look at the toil of work. I'll read verse 17 again for you, in verse B. It 17B, it says this, cursed is the ground because of you through, what? Painful toil, you will eat fruit from it all the days of your life. We all know that work requires effort. It requires toiling. But here's the thing, work has always required effort, right? That's why work is called work. Even before the fall, it required work. But when we think of effort at work, we assume it's a bad thing, but actually in of itself it's not. The curse of sin over work doesn't make it less, any less good, but it makes the process and the effort behind work, painful. It's painful. And this particularly hits hard when you, don't, when you do things and they don't go the way you want them to work. And we see this in, verses eight, in verse 18. It says, you, it will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Now, truth be told, I'm not a, I'm not a gardening man. I'm not a gardening man, and most millennials like myself, we don't actually know what gardening really is. The most we know is like houseplants and like succulents and stuff, but that's not really actually gardening, right, to be honest. That's not real gardening. Real gardening is thorns and thistles, brothers and sisters. I remember being eight years old. I was helping out my parents do some gardening, pulling out some weeds and stuff. As an eight-year-old, you're, you're super naive. You don't actually know how hard work really is. Right? So when I see like little Jack here, like Tom's kid here, he's helping out bring out the tables and stuff, and he's like, he's got a smiley face on and stuff. I'm like, man, that's so cute. You are so naive, bro. Your creation's gonna get you one day, and you're gonna hate it. <laughs> you're gonna hate helping out your parents. 
And, but I remember one distinct moment when I was helping out my parents when I was eight. I had these gardening gloves on. And they told me, pull out these weeds. Pull out. I was doing my thing, like, just sweating, working hard. I remember this, it was like midday sun. Um, and I remember a thorn, I don't know if it was a thorn or if it was something sharp, went through the glove and into my finger. Now, I don't remember that exact moment. I just remember pain. But I, I imagine me being eight years old, being pretty overdramatic about it. Um, and I was pretty much scarred from that point, right? <laughs> And that's why I don't do gardening today. <laughs> True story. Uh, I ain't got time for that. Um, but luckily, I don't like work is painful. Work is painful because when you're broken, working with a broken creation, work is going to want to break you. As a physio, myself, I'm a physio, I see work related injuries all the time. It's a daily reminder of, of how painful work is, uh, whether it be self inflicted through poor posture or it's because, simply because of the nature of the job, because, of the job, because they're, you know, they're, they're tradies or they're doing lots of work, or there's accidents from occupational hazards. And then there's the personal reminder for me when I go home and my thumbs are sore, and if you look at my thumb, my right thumb is actually thicker through here. That's the osteoarthritic change. I'm, I'm gonna get osteoarthritis when I get to 50, right? So that's, that's the result of work for you. How are thorns and thistles in this world aren't just physical. It can also be emotional and psychological. Sometimes when we work, the effort that we put in doesn't give the result we want. We don't get the fruits of our labors. And sometimes we, do all the, we can do all the right things and get no result at all. There's barely any food and it's just thorns and thistles. We do the right training, we get the right qualifications, we send off all the polished CVs and spend so many hours on coverlers. Who, who even reads those things, by the way? We do free work as interns or do minimum wage jobs. We do all the right networking. We grind and grind and grind. We hack the early mornings. We hack the late evenings. We painfully toil. All for what? Thorns and thistles. And this kills us emotionally. And for some of us, I realize this is really, really real. Especially with the pandemic, it's really heightened this reality. It's causing unemployment or underemployment. I, I get it, it's hard, it's stressing, it's depressing. I can understand why some of us have a hate relationship with work. It's not, you're not crazy or overly emotional or irrational to hate work because of the pain it inflicts. Pain and suffering with work is real. And the Christian faith says that although it is normal, it is not right. Although it is normal, it is not right. I want to talk more about the suffering caused by work, but we'll, we'll get to that a bit later. I want to keep looking at the other ways that work has been frustrated, namely the meaninglessness of work. Now, it might sound unusual to you that work might seem meaningless, because why would you do the work if it didn't have some sort of reason behind it, right? But there's something in the human soul that craves meaning and purpose. And because of the curse of sin, work sometimes feels really, really pointless. I turned, I turned 30 last year. I know there are plenty of people here that are much older than me, but I'm not going to pretend that I know I'm the wisest guys out here. But sometimes when I go to work, even though I help people as a physio, I get really depressed by it. And that's because I see chronic pain, 
chronic ailments, things I just can't fix. Sometimes I wonder, like, what am, what am I doing here? I'm putting my elbows into people, and I'm like, I've seen two weeks expecting no, like, and knowing that it's probably not going to be much change through there. It gives them a bit of relief, but that's it. Our bodies are broken. And that, that sometimes depresses, that sometimes, to be honest, that depresses me a little bit. It's kind of futile. It's kind of meaningless. Now, if you know me, you might point out, Tran, you're just an Enneagram, you're an Enneagram 3, you're an achiever, you like to achieve things. So if you're not getting something, if you're not fixing something, that's why you're sad, bro. But no, 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 no. This feeling of meaningless is a reality for all of us, even people who are actually successful. If you have your Bibles with me, flip open to Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 23. I'll read it out for you. Ecclesiastes 2, 17 to 23 says this. Uh, no, I'll go to 19, sorry. Um, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. The context of this passage, if you're not familiar with Ecclesiastes, it was written by a guy named King Solomon, the son of King David. King Solomon was a king who asked God for wisdom and was known for his wisdom. He tried to find, in, in, in Ecclesiastes, he tries to find meaning in life from the things in life. So he tries to, in the first couple of chapters, he, he tries to find meaning in wisdom and he tries to find them in pleasure. And both of those things he had are plenty. And guess what? He says they are all meaningless. And then he tries it with work. He tries it with work, but what does he do? He calls it chasing after the wind. When you think about it, how do you chase after the wind? If you have kids, I dare you to ask your kids, chase after the wind, bro. It's like, ha ha, and then they, they grab nothing and it's like, what, what's the point? What's the point? Grab it and it's gone. And even Solomon succeeds, um, says, and in, even in Sol- Solomon's success, you see this in verse 19. He says, And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all, my, all the fruit of my toil in which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Solomon's, King Solomon is telling us here, when he, when, he, when he dies, all his effort is going to be left to someone, and he can't trust that person to not ruin it, ruin all his accomplishments and works and deeds. As Christians, we believe that when humans work, that we are actually being like God. When we are creating and cultivating, we are fulfilling our purpose to reflect him, to be like him. And when the result of that work is squashed by the brokenness of the world, we feel purposelessness. It feels like meaninglessness. It feels like vapor. I obviously want to spare, spare a thought for the COVID vaccine like, researchers. If you think about it, if you're, a vaccine, if you're trying to make this vaccine, think about all the complications that are happening right now. Think of how many strains of the virus, of the virus that your strain might not actually work on. Think of, we have this solution now, but how many governments are going to restrict it because of some side effect? There's knockback after knockback after knockback after knockback. 
On a personal note, it might, that meaninglessness might, feel, it might look like you know, if you're in a paid vocation and you just feel like a cog in the machine. Even though we live in a capitalistic society that has lifted people out of poverty, employees and corp- employers and corporations ultimately see our work as a number on the balance sheet. And so work can depersonalize us and we just feel like a cog. Meaningless of work could look like spending huge amounts of man hours working on a project and then only to have your employer scrap it due to budget constraints. Meaninglessness of vocation doesn't just end there though. It could also be, meaninglessness of work doesn't just end there though. It could also be as something as trivial as, you know, washing your car and then two hours later the rain coming down. (laughs) You know that feeling? But it could also be as serious as you spending 20 years raising your child, instructing them in the ways of the Lord, only to see them make destructive life decisions. Or maybe even spending years pointing someone to Jesus, reading the Bible with them, seeing them grow, only to see them throw away their faith because they see God as less, important, less value than their own autonomy. It's very easy to throw up our hands and say, what's the flipping point? When we essentially learn, what we essentially learn here in Ecclesiastes is that on this side of eternity, work purely and in of itself, purely and in of itself, will distound to meaninglessness and will eventually grate against the fabric of our souls. But the fact that we are told this in the Bible is because it shows that God knows that what we are going through God knows, and it does not surprise God at all. Again, I've spent more time more on that in a moment, but before we do, I want to lastly talk about how work can be frustrating, seen mostly in the idolatry behind work. Now, if you've been here as a Christian at City Light North Adelaide, we know that the, uh, the, God, it's not, an, it's not a, a crazy idea that, you know, the only God that we should worship is the God of the Bible, right? But for God's people in the Old Testament, idolatry might have looked like worshiping pagan gods, might have been, and that seems like a foreign concept to us, but for God's people today, for us, I I would argue that that idea of idolatry is is, is, is alive and kicking today. You see, the heart of idolatry is putting something or someone as number one priority in your life that isn't God. It's not merely a bowing down of the knee It's the bowing down of the heart. An idol is what we put our hopes in. It's where we put our ultimate desires in. It's where we put our utmost confidence in. It's it's the very thing we stake our lives on. Our idolatry is about making a good thing a God thing. And as Christians, we must be careful because the words of our lips may say one thing, but the works of our hands might say another. In the case of work and the curse of sin, work itself can be an idol, which can lead to like workaholism, work workaholism, yes, workaholism. But for many Australians, I feel like we're too laid back for that to be a problem. That generally isn't the problem. I reckon the problem is more got to do with what work gives us. Humanity's distorted relationship with creation and work makes us prone to use work 
as a means of worshiping something else altogether. And this, my friends, can make work absolutely miserable. I'm gonna put up a photo. Oh, guy here, does anyone know who this guy is? Anyone? Who is it? Gary v. It's Gary V. Gary Vaynerchuk. Um, he's a secular guy. He's mostly a social influencer. He's written a few books. Uh, that's what you do as influencers, right? He touts himself as this, influ- um, this entrepreneurial guru investor. Just between you and me, he's not, he's not Elon or Jeff Bezos, but he thinks he's pretty cool. Um, depending, on his, uh, depending on what source you read, he has a net worth of like 200 million US. Um, I follow this guy personally on Instagram. He has some interesting things to say. Um, and there are actually a few things I actually do resonate with him. Um, he has a bit of an abrasive personality, and I, I love and hate this guy because he has some kitschy quotes um, that I find like, oh, that's kind of nice. But then he's also really prolific on Instagram. It's the worst. But he says one of his lines that he's, I remember, um, he's, he's, he, all his mantras are the same, really, but I just found this quote from him, and it's, he says this. People are chasing cash, not happiness. When you chase money, you're going to lose. You're just going to. Even if you get the money, you're not going to be happy. Essentially, the essence of his whole shtick, his whole MO, is that work is, is about that you should do work that makes you happy. He's essentially a hedonist. He, cl- he claims for him, working 16 hours a day is what he lives for. That's what makes him happy. He loves the grind, he loves the hustle. But he tells his followers, don't be like him. Do work that makes you happy. Do something that makes you happy. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Don't worry about anyone else has to say. Is that not the mantra of our day though, friends? You do you. Do what makes you happy. When our laid back Aussie culture hears this, work then becomes a means to our God of comfort. It could look like using work to you know, get that house that's just a, little bit, just a little bit big enough, big enough, quote unquote, in that nice suburb, or maybe it's just enough to you know, buy that, that, extra, that car with just the little extra features, or that boat or holiday home, or maybe something that's a bit more palatable for Christians like us. It's just you know, we can work to make a comfortable, have a comfortable life for ourselves and our family. Now, to be honest, friends, this is, these things are not bad things in of themselves, and if you have, you have the ability to do them, um, then that's not, it's, not really a, it's not really a bad thing, but when we are worshippers of comfort, we sacrifice ourselves at the altar of work. But work also reveals other idols as well. Work is going to be a struggle when we are slaves to gain power, influence, and status whether it be you know, climbing the corporate ladder or hitting those, that number of followers on Instagram or Twitter or, or, or YouTube. But actually, I think that, all of that, actually stems from something a bit more nuanced. It stems from this idea of getting your self-actualization from work. You know, getting your value from your work, getting your value from how well you do your work. And if that's the question then, it begs the, if that's the case, that begs the question then, what happens if you're no longer able to do that thing? What happens if you lose that job or if your job gets threatened by like a competitor or artificial intelligence? What happens when the Instagram algorithm doesn't favor you anymore? What happens when your workers outwork you? What happens when you stop being recognized 
for the work that you do. Our culture is steeped, it's steeped in this idea of self-actualization. Be all you can be, fulfill your potential, as if those things determine your value. But work then becomes a crushing performance game because if you aren't living up to quote-unquote your potential, it implies that at that moment you are less valuable than you actually could be. That's crushing, friends. And this is not just workers in the workforce or for those of us who are unemployed or underemployed. It goes out to even parents who look after kids as their work. If your identity, if, I know there's parents here, if your identity is wrapped up in looking after your kids and how well you do that, that's an incredible burden that you will not be able to bear. I say this lovingly, that's, that's an, I know you love your kids, but that is an incredible burden that you will not be able to bear. You will hate your work as a parent, especially if you play the comparison game. When we consider humanity's corrupt, sinful nature, it's no wonder why we struggle with work. It's because we make work into something that it was never meant to be. Now, if you're wondering like me, and you're, I wonder to myself, why did, why did God frustrate work like this? This sounds really depressing, friend. <laughs> It sounds really depressing. When you read Genesis 3, you might have questions like, why did God curse creation? Why did, it sounds a bit unfair. I didn't do anything wrong, Tran. Why should I suffer because Adam and Eve messed up? Why should I even bother with work since he's the, one that, he's the one that cursed it? But here in Romans, we get a glimpse of why, into why God cursed creation. I'm gonna read 18 to 21 of, verse, of chapter eight in Romans. I cons- Paul says this, I consider that the present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected in frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. If you look at verse 20 here, the words subjection to frustration and in hope. God subjected creation's corruption in hope. In hope of what? The words in hope show us that God uses the corruption of creation to show humanity that they and the world are in need of fixing. Think of, this, think of it this way. Earlier I said that struggling with work is a symptom, right? If struggling is the symptom, then sin is the cancer. Sin is the cancer. It is a small cancer that is absolutely deadly and it will kill you. And the average person cannot see it. But God, in both his justice and his mercy towards us, made the cancer of sin obvious by making the symptoms of cancer very easy to see. The Bible tells us that these symptoms of sin are the corruption of creation and the disordering of our desires. God does this to highlight to us that we are in all need of redemption. 
To sum it up more precisely, I, John, I love John Piper because he puts things really, sometimes he puts it really, really well, uh, but this is really great here. He says this, um, unless you have some sense of the infinite holiness of God and the unspeakable outrage of sin against this God, you will inevitably see that futility and suffering of the universe as an overreaction. But in fact, the point of our miseries, our futility, our corruption, our groaning, is to teach us the horror of sin and the preciousness of redemption and hope. What might seem like unmerited suffering and pain for many of us, and yes, God does not make light of your pain, he knows. But it's actually a reminder of how truly messed up the world is. And every bit of pain that we experience, every struggle we have with work is designed to remind us that we are in need of a savior. What does that mean for us today, friends? Well, it means, I think, three things. Firstly, I think it means this. To lean, firstly, to lean not on your own understanding. Not saying that you discount your brain because God has given you a brain to think about things but sometimes we don't understand things because we're not God. Sometimes I miss, I think sometimes I think like, oh, why don't I know this? But then I realize I can't find my keys. <laughs> Figure that out. Proverbs 3, 5 to 6 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. And know sometimes that the, you know, the, inherited, brokenness, the inherited brokenness of the world it's actually not your fault. It's, sometimes, it's actually, sometimes it's not actually your fault. This doesn't mean that we are, are not to be responsible for our own, our own sins that we commit and that we can just you know, contribute more to the brokenness. That's not what I'm saying at all. But the inherited brokenness of the world is sometimes not our fault. If you're experiencing, if you're experiencing pain with work or meaninglessness with work, no matter the vocation, homeschool, whatever, if it's something that you didn't directly do, then it's not your fault. And sometimes we don't, we don't understand why God allows these things to happen, but he does. And let me invite you to trust him because he has a bigger perspective than you do. And this is a hard ask because if you're a Christian going through a hard time at work, you're probably reminding yourself of scriptures like, oh God, we know that God, work, God works for those good of those who love him. We, we are, we're God's handiwork. God has given us works advanced to do. He looks after birds in the air. He, how much more would he feed me and, and, and look after me and love me? Are, they not much, are we not much more valuable than them? And we hear these scriptures and we feel like this does not sync up with reality. It can send us on a bit of a spiral and we can blame ourselves and doubt God. But the God of the Bible didn't just, creation, didn't just curse his creation and just leave it. But we know he can be trusted because he came down himself, God did, did the deed and entered into creation. Which leads me into my second point here, that in our brokenness, in our broken world, we can, try, we can, we, we can have confidence because God is with us. Not if, but when you're having a hard time, remember that God is with you. I wanna, I wanna encourage you, remind yourself of the entirety of the Godhead himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, 
The Father knows how, and f- knows what you feel and understands. He, he knows you better than you understand yourself. He doesn't dismiss or discount your pain, but acknowledges it to the point that he sent his son to fix it. Think of the son who came into creation, who subjected himself, the perfect God-man himself, or subjected himself to the curse of the fall, including pain and sorrow and death, and experienced death himself, and now is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. Think of the spirit that God has given us that lives inside of us and his presence will empower us to live the life that God has called us to no matter the hardship. There is no God like our God and that God is with us. And thirdly, for the road home, know that God is for us. We might think that it's unfair, we won't feel like it's unfair, that the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to us and we were born into a broken world. But I will contend to you, brothers and sisters, that do you know what's really unfair? That Jesus, the perfect God-man himself, experienced death and his righteousness was imputed to us. That's unfair. And even though we still live under the curse of creation, we are no longer bound to death because of the work of Jesus God did not abandon us and just pain and suffering, pain and suffering, but He came for us. Like Paul said earlier, I do not compare the present sufferings not I, com- I do not compare the present sufferings worthy comparing to, to the glory of that will be revealed. Um, our struggles with life and work are not are not indicative of God's favor towards us, but we know that by looking at God's perspective, if you're in Christ. You have everything that you could ever want. Life is hard, life is frustrating, but our work is not in vain, brothers and sisters, because we can trust God at his word. We know that he's with us, and we always know that he's for us. Let's remember those things this week as we go to work. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you did not leave us to your own devices. We thank you that you are such a great and gracious God. Yes. You, you, you did not leave us in our, in our pain. You didn't, didn't leave us to just wallow there, but you, you gave us Jesus. Lord, remind us of your goodness to us. We do not deserve your grace. You entered into creation. You subjected yourself to fertility just for us. Lord, we are so prone to wander. Help us be near to you. Again, we thank you for the gift of Jesus that help us this week to live, live in a response to, live well in response to his grace. Even if we struggle at work, help us to remind us that of the goodness that is to come of the glory that is coming for us. We love you. We pray these in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church.